Welcome to episode 31. This one is entitled, How I Became an Outlaw Biographer. I can pinpoint the exact moment when this happened. I was uh, on Cass Avenue in Detroit, Michigan, where I was then teaching for Wayne State University. I had just conducted an interview on the phone with the poet Richard Wilbur. And in the course of the interview, he said uh, something like, well, you're going to have a tough time with this biography of Lillian Hellman. He was one of Lillian Hellman's friends. Why is that, I wondered. He said, well, she's closed her archive at the University of Texas. Uh, I sort of gulped, didn't say anything. I didn't know that. Uh, I already had a contract to write a biography of Lillian Hellman, a proposal that I had put together in about three months, and uh, I had to deliver a biography in 12 months from the date of the contract. That was because there were other Hellman biographers around. She had an authorized biographer, William Abrams, who had been her editor at Little Brown, Hillary Mills, who had done a Mailer biography, was also working on a biography of Lillian Hellman, and St. Martin's Press was very worried um, about whether uh, another biography of Lillian Hellman could sell. She was then, we're talking about uh, the mid to late 1980s, Hellman was then um, very popular and controversial. Um, St. Martin's, as I say, was worried about getting the book out as soon as possible, since there was this competition. And also, William Wright, I forgot to mention, who wrote the first Hellman biography, was just about finished with his biography of Hellman as I was getting started. And I had the benefit of looking at his research since I got a copy of his galleys. Nevertheless, it came as quite a blow on the street, uh, uh, telling a colleague of mine um, about this interview with Richard Wilbur and that her uh, archive had been closed. Um, in a way, I'm glad I didn't know that um, because I would have felt obligated to say something about that in the proposal. But I proceeded in all ignorance when I wrote the proposal. Um, just as a digression, I might say, it's, it's, I think it's very helpful. Um, uh, it has been very helpful to me and to biographers to essentially delude, delude yourself, delude, delusion, um, I've always deluded myself that whatever subject I picked, I've been the best person to write it. And because I operate under that illusion, almost any obstacle I now know is not going to deter me uh, because I have this sense of mission. I have this sense of destiny uh, that I'm the one to complete the book. Um, and at any rate, to make a long story short, since I have a lot of other books I want to talk about, um, I actually wrote to her authorized biographer, William Abrams, to try to figure out where along he was in the process. Well, he didn't tell me, but he wrote me what I thought was a very funny note, saying he was the one and only authorized biographer of William Hellman. And by the way, he never did write the book, although he did some interviewing, as I found out when I did my interviewing. At any rate, that's the, the point at which I became an outlaw. That's the point at which I turned against the very idea of authorized biography. To call yourself authorized or to call a book the authorized biography almost makes any other kind of work, uh, well, the term is unauthorized, which in some people's minds almost sounds like it's illegal, or if not illegal, illicit and somehow the authorized biographer has the moral high ground. Well, uh, if you know anything about my view of biography, I certainly don't believe that's the case at all. If anything, the authorized biographer is often the keeper of secrets, the one who is restrained, who can't tell the whole truth. John Wilbur, in this interview, told me something which uh, completely uh, changed my life as a biographer, which reoriented my whole notion of biography. What he said to me was, 
uh, that Lillian Hellman had told him not to talk to anyone except his authorized biographer. She told many people this. She told William Styron this. She told um, John Hersey this. Both of those figures uh, I wrote to, and they wrote, uh, especially Hersey, wrote me almost a kind of soul-searching letter. After all, he was a journalist uh, and uh, dealt with all kinds of sources, really apologetic about not being able to talk to me because he had given this promise to Hellman. I also got a postcard from William Styron indicating the same thing, that he wished he could talk to me, but that he had promised Lillian that he would not talk to anyone except William Abrams. Well, when Richard Wilbur was also asked to, in a sense, sign the same pledge, he said, hell no. He said, my experience of Lillian Hellman is my experience. It's a part of my life. Who is Lillian Hellman to tell me who I can't, what I can and cannot say about her or anything else or about myself and so on? Well, that, I have to tell you, liberated me. It liberated me then. It liberated me forever. Um, what happen, What happens often when you're unauthorized, or as I am call myself an outlaw, when you're banished from certain archives, is uh, you work harder. In Lillian Hellman's case, although her archive was closed, it had been open for more than 20 years and had been mined extensively by Ph.D. students who wrote dissertations who included a great deal of those archives in their dissertations. So I was able to reconstruct a good deal of her archive. At any rate, there's another thing I need to say about being an outlaw. An outlaw means you make your own rules. You define yourself as a biographer. You're not defined by what other people say about what they think biography should be. To hell with that. What this meant in Lillian Hillman's case, and it's meant in a lot of my biographies, is, well, look at the subtitle of my book. Originally, it was Her uh, Legend and Her Legacy. When I revised the biography, I called it Her Life and Legend. In either case, in either title, what I'm getting at is the biography I'm going to, tell, I'm going to write, the story I have to tell, is about how that person became a legend. Now, by the very nature of it, Someone who, in some sense, projects themselves as a legend is not sticking closely to the facts, at least not all the time, and in Lillian Hellman's case, often not sticking to the facts. Why would an authorized biographer be the best one to tell that story? Not impossible, but someone like William Abrams, who had been her editor, is implicated in the making of that legend. He edited her memoirs. He's complicit. Uh, why ultimately he did not write the book, because he did write other books, why he didn't write Hellman's biography, I'm not certain, except that some things he found about Hellman, but some of the lies, um, I know he would have found difficult to deal with as the authorized biographer. I know this by talking to her attorney, Hellman's attorney, Joseph Rao, who told me as much that when he told um, Abram certain things about Hellman. He said he could see the look of dismay on Abram's face. Well, that doesn't happen when you're an outlaw biographer. You go in knowing uh, that you're not going to be beholden to these people and you're going to make your own rules. In the course of doing the Hellman biography, I became very interested in Martha Gellhorn. Uh, Gellhorn wrote a very, very funny piece about Hellman and all Hellman's lies in uh, it was published in the Paris Review. And uh, I looked around and I realized that although there had been many Hemingway biographies, there had not been one of Martha Gellhorn, who was his third wife. So she seemed like an excellent uh, opportunity. I already knew going in that I was unlikely to get any sort of cooperation from Hellman, uh, from Gellhorn, but and probably even hostility. I wrote to her. I always write to my living subjects if they're if they are alive, um, and told her that I I I didn't write to her until I had a contract for the Gellhorn biography, um, and said I would like to speak with her. She took that as a letter asking for authorization. She took that as meaning you can't write a biography of me unless I give you permission. I sent her some of my articles. She 
wrote back a complimentary letter, nice articles, but no biography, don't want one. Um, I persisted. When she found out that I was persisting, she sicked a, a Manhattan law firm uh, who wrote to my publisher, St. Martin's Press, threatening legal action. This is before the book was published. Uh, Gellhorn, uh, St. Martin's Press wanted to publish the Gellhorn book and um, uh, did not back down. Uh, then uh, they started to get letters from people like Bill Buford, who was then the editor of Granton, who was a Martha Gellhorn crony, and I would say a Martha Gellhorn lackey. Uh, and he was the one who, who informed uh, the publisher that... Um, there's an authorized biography of Martha Gellhorn. So, of course, she's going to be cooperating with that authorized biographer. Well, that was contrary to everything Martha Gellhorn had ever said about biography, saying she didn't want one, she didn't think a writer's personal life was anybody's business, and so on. So, I say, as I said in my first biography, I've written two. In the first biography of Gellhorn, Nothing Ever Happens to the Brave, the story of Martha Gellhorn, I said in the prologue to that book, if Martha Gellhorn could have one biographer authorized, she could certainly have two or more who were unauthorized. Well, one of those was me, so I just proceeded with my business. Um, and the book was published. There were more threats. The book was vetted, vetted by attorneys. And my second biography, was that was written after her death. Uh, when I had access to new material. Again, certain archives were closed off. I found new archives with, uh, you know, when your subject's archive is closed, you look for the archives of others who knew your subject. Again, there was enough um, to do a biography of Martha Gellhorn. The first bi biography was called Nothing Ever Happens to the Brave, the story of Martha Gellhorn. It's a motto from Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. And again, I had a theme. I had, I had a, a point that I was making, again, about her drive to be one of these brave ones, as Hemingway defined them. That was the motive force of her life. Um, that was a story I could tell. Uh, there would be enough people to interview, no matter how many people turned me down, no matter how many archives were closed to me. I had enough material to tell the story I wanted to tell, which, again, I think is what an outlaw has to do. Uh, the outlaw is not part of the establishment. It's not part of a, that writer's circle. The outlaw is outlaw biographer is one who, again, has his or her own set of standards and mode of operating. The next biography I wanted to do was of Rebecca West, and I, I got intrigued uh, with Rebecca West the same way I got intrigued with Martha Gellhorn. Uh, it all originated from my biography of Lillian Hellman because Hellman and West hated each other. They were on the opposite sides politically. Hellman interviewed, uh, reviewed rather, Lillian Hellman reviewed a, a biography of Gordon Ray about H.G. Wells and Rebecca West and their affair, and which are, are, you know eventuated in the birth of their son, Anthony West. And I thought, wow, the more I, I read about Rebecca West uh, as uh, journalist, novelist, art historian, travel writer, you name it, she did it. Just a fantastic subject to do. There was a problem. <laughs> the problem with Rebecca West, we're, we're going back now to uh, the early 1990s, is uh, she, had, she had, was dead by then. Um, she had two authorized biographers. The first one was Victoria Glendening, who was authorized to write a short biography. The second one was an American writer, uh, Stanley Olson authorized to write the long one. His was going to be 300,000 words. Eventually, I got a copy of his contract. Well, uh, I was told by my agents, both in New York and London, that to try to do a biography right then of Rebecca West with two <laughs> authorized biographers was a bit much. So I turned to someone much closer to home. By then, I was working in New York, not in Detroit, Michigan. I was, in fact, 
dean of the uh, School of Education at Brook College, part of the city university. And I was looking for a subject I could do while carrying a pretty heavy administrative load. Uh, in fact, I was both associate provost and dean of the School of Education. That's a long story. I'll have to tell in my memoirs if I ever write them. And I decided on Norman Mailer. He lived in Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn. We had certain mutual friends, particularly the poet Norman Roston. I did not expect Mailer's cooperation. Why? Because he had an authorized biographer. Who is that? Robert Lucid. I did the same thing with Robert Lucid that I did with William Abrams. I wrote to him. In Lucid's case, Lucid had heard me give a talk about Mailer some years before at the Modern Language Association in New York. Uh, he wrote me a very courteous letter, and we actually had lunch. Uh, at this lunch, uh, I said, I know you're the authorized biographer. Uh, there are a few specific items. Mailer had a huge private archive, then in Manhattan. Now it's at the University of Texas at Austin. There was a huge amount of material, uh, and I know you're the authorized biographer, I said to Lucid, but, and I named four or five uh, specific items that I'd like to, to I'd like to look at, and he said he would be able to get them copied and and give them to me. He was he seemed very welcoming. Uh, all I'll say about that is that's the last I heard of from Robert Lucid. My, I suspect that that lunch that we had was simply his effort to to sound me out to see what I was up to and um, how far along I was and so on. And I happen to be a very open person. I don't keep these things secret. I know a lot of biographers who don't want to talk about work in progress and think, you know, it's going to be hexed or someone else is going to run with their material and so on. I don't do that. You ask me about my work and I will I will tell you what it is. I think that's part of being an outlaw is uh, you have no corner on the market. You don't possess your subject. Um, I might feel I'm the best one in the world to write about that subject, but precisely because I think I'm the best one to write about that subject, I'm not worried about somebody else coming along because they're not going to do uh, a Carl Rollison biography of Norma Mailer. I'll just say one more thing about the Mailer biography, which was published without his opposition, uh, with, to use a phrase that uh, Daniel Patrick uh, Moynihan uh, coined many years ago, Mailer treated me with benign neglect. I think part it was because it was Norman Mailer. He wasn't the kind of person to shut another writer down for whatever reason, even when doing a biography of him. On principle, he simply wouldn't do that. Um, he had loyalty to Robert Lucid, so he wasn't going to be interviewed by me, although at one point Mailer wrote me a letter and said he'll think about it, but he, he never did uh, lend himself to an interview. Uh, I also know uh, from people in Hawaii, the, the editor George Simpson, the journal biography, that Mailer at one point uh, told them, uh, because he was visiting Hawaii, a friend in Hawaii, he said that my article on his biography of Marilyn Monroe was the best thing that had ever been written. So maybe he had at least a little bit of a soft spot for me. Anyway, he didn't treat me as a major problem. He just left me alone. The only thing that did happen was that his agent, uh, Scott Meredith, uh, actually uh, one of his underlings, uh, wanted to take a look at my Mailer manuscript, uh, the biography manuscript, and it was done, and I refused. And he said, well, if we give you permission to quote from Mailer, then that means we're, we're authorizing or we're approving of the work. And I wrote back and I said, that's just ridiculous. You're just giving me permission to quote from his work. And, you know, I can't be responsible for someone who might think that I was authorized. I certainly don't call myself that. Actually, at that point, Mailer did step in. Uh, he had been writing a novel, Harlot's Ghost, and hadn't been paying attention to this back-and-forth correspondence that I'd had with his agents, his agency, the Scott Meredith Agency, and he said, I've never refused the permission of anyone uh, to quote from my work. Of course you can have the permission. I later got the permission letter from Scott Meredith, the head of the agent, who said, Mr. Mailer has authorized me to charge you the lowest possible fee to quote from his writings. That fee was $250, which was quite remarkably low because I, I did a lot of quoting from Mailer's work. And because he was a living writer especially, I was a little careful about seeking permissions. Often, as an outlaw biographer, I completely avoid the writer's estate.
Okay, after I finished the mailer, I got some really good news. Um, Victoria Glendening had published her short biography of Rebecca West. But she did not have access to the Yale archive because West had made an agreement, which she had never revoked, with Yale University, the Beinecke Library, saying that no one could look at her the papers there, and it was a substantial collection. No one could look at her archive there without her permission, or if she was no longer alive, uh, the archive could not be opened until her death uh, and the death of her son, Anthony West. Well, um, by the um, early 90s, uh, West had died, and her son, Anthony West, had died. And I had been in contact with Vincent Giroux, the curator at Yale at that time. And I had said to him at one point, you know, if there's if the Yale archive ever is accessible, please let me know. And he did. He wrote to me, and he said, the archive is now open. Um, it, it's a huge archive, not quite as large as the one that the University of Tulsa bought of West Papers, but nevertheless, really vital material that was not available to Victoria Glendening. The other thing that happened was Stanley Olson, who was quite young, I think he was 42, not much more than 42, he died of a stroke. Um, and that long biography of Rebecca West wasn't going to get written. I still, I knew, because Victoria Glendening was such a big name in biography, um, I would have to mount quite a case to do a second biography of Rebecca West. What I did is, I was living in Brooklyn then, uh, I took the train uh, every Friday, because I, I was, I was uh, uh, by then an administrator, and uh, I could afford to take certain Fridays off. I would take the, the Metro North uh, train to New Haven, and work one day a week in Rebecca West's archive. And I just found a treasure trove of stuff. At that point, it wasn't even cataloged. I opened a box one day in her love letters to the Nuremberg prosecutor, Nicholas Biddle, um, um, dropped out of the box. Francis Biddle, sorry, not Nicholas Biddle. Francis Biddle dropped out of the box. They weren't supposed to be in that box. Uh, anyway, there were just treasures. So my proposal, which was well over 100 pages, recounted all the treasures in this archive and also the people that agreed uh, to be interviewed. I'll tell you one little short story about the Rebecca West biography. I, uh, when I started contacting people, I contacted a writer named Dasheen Rainier who wrote me back and said, kind of like, what someone would say about Lillian Hellman. Rebecca West was such a liar, you'll never be able to figure it out. And, and uh, she then went around calling people, saying you know, there was this goofy American, Carl Rollison, who thought he could do a biography of Rebecca West. Well, uh, people didn't listen to her because she was kind of a kook herself, for one thing. Um, Anthony West's first wife, Kitty, told me the story later when, when I interviewed Kitty. She said, you know, Dasheen Renner called me up and she said, uh, Dasheen said, you know, don't talk to Rollison. He's not going to be able to produce a good book. And Kitty said, I told her, I said, who are you to tell me who to talk to? If I want to talk to him, I'll talk to him, which she did. Not only did she talk to me in an extensive interview, but she wrote several wonderful letters to me uh, that were quoted in my, my biography of Rebecca West. Uh, I was, I was worried about the West biography in this sense. Would I get permission to quote? Because again, I quoted a lot from her work. And second, um, her party split down the middle, and it was over money. Who 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 inherited her estate? And her nephew got it. Her her uh, her son Anthony didn't, because there was bad blood between the mother and the son. I thought, oh boy, I'm going to get whacked at both ends. It's inevitable. Uh, the 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 part the part of the family that sided with the nephew who got the money, uh, they'll be upset about certain things I say about her treatment of her son. And the people who were friends with Anthony and Anthony had a lot of friends. Anthony was a very engaging person. He had a lot of friends, many of whom I interviewed. I thought they'll be upset because of some of the things that Rebecca says about Anthony's behavior. It turns out I didn't have to worry. 
And the reason I didn't have to worry was because Rebecca had managed managed to insult all members of her family, both both sides. Both sides knew she was a difficult case. And actually, I think had a little pity for me trying to sort out all the truth of this. So I was able to go back and forth between both sides of the family. I let both sides of the family read the book. Uh, and they they weren't troubled by it because they knew what kind of person she was. So I, I really lucked out on that one. So that wasn't enough for me. I decided to do a biography of another living figure, Susan Sontag. And I often said this. I didn't actually say it in the proposal because it didn't have to be said in the proposal. Working on Susan Sontag, now this is in the mid to late 1990s, was like working on a mafia figure. She was so well-connected in New York. She was so heavily protected by her um, publisher, Roger Strauss, who never let any of her work go out of print. Um, uh, I had interviewed young writers who, uh, one of them wouldn't even talk to me off the record because she said somehow it'll get back to Susan and then the review of my first novel is going to be negative. That's the kind of power that people thought Susan Sontag had. It's never quite been clear to me exactly how much power Susan Sontag had, but, you know, it's it's like the perceptions of power. Uh, if the perception is strong enough, it's as good as actually having the power. I decided in the case of Sontag that this was going to be like going to war, uh, or being accused of a crime, again, back to the outlaw biographer notion. Uh, and I had had all along a not-so-secret weapon, my wife, Lisa Paddock, who is an attorney and who is particularly interested in copyright law. And that's usually how they get biographers. They accuse you of copyright infringement, or they think they can stop a biography by telling you uh, you won't get permission to quote. At this point, after the Mailer biography, I realized I, I was going to do a fair use biography of Susan Sontag, as I did with Lillian Hellman, too, by the way. Uh, I didn't seek permission because I didn't think I'd get it or there would, well, with Sontag, I just wouldn't get it. It wouldn't be possible. Um, the proposal was written saying, uh, we didn't use the word outlaw biography, but this is going to be unauthorized and uh, there's going to be trouble over this book. Now, what publisher in his or her right mind is going to take a book with a proposal like that? The fact was, most of the the trade publishers in New York wouldn't touch our book, a biography by Carl Rollison. They wouldn't touch it. Uh, one of them said flat out, "I'm a friend of Susan's. I couldn't. I couldn't possibly publish this book." But there was one editor at W.W. W. Norton, uh, who was, in a sense, as much, uh, he probably wouldn't like this term, but he was as much an outlaw in this respect as we were outlaws. Uh, Jerry Howard, uh, who's about to retire. Jerry was just absolutely galvanized by the proposal. He thought it was time for a biography of Susan Sontag. And here he had two writers, one of whom was a lawyer, who weren't going to back down, who in their proposal talked about how difficult it was going to be to do, and yet how in, in, we had, Lisa had not written my other books, but she had advised me in all these other books how we were prepared, no matter how much Sontag came gunning for us. And she did come gunning. And she did field her forces against us. And that's told uh, in the revised and updated Sontag biography that University Press of Mississippi published uh, in 2017. Again, what motivated me, or in this case, us, was uh, the subtitle of the biography, The Making of an Icon. As long as we could tell that story, it didn't matter how many people didn't speak to us, what archive might be close close to us, what law firm Sontag hired to hector us, and she did do that, plus other powerful attorneys like Martin Garbus, who were friends. He believes in the First Amendment, except when it comes to Susan Sontag, by the way. Um, we were prepared because 
I had read in Publishers Weekly that Ferris Strauss had sold its archive to New York Public Library, and it hadn't put conditions on it. Probably because they thought Sontag was untouchable. I don't know why. We got in touch with the New York Public Library. We got to look at that collection before it was cataloged. And it it was the bedrock. It laid out the map for how Susan Sontag was established as an icon because of the letters to and from her editors and Roger Strauss and the whole bit. Roger Strauss had an oral history, which was at Columbia, which we couldn't look at, which he wouldn't let us look at. But we went ahead uh, and did the book. After that, I was sort of thinking of taking a rest, because it is very arduous being an outlaw. Uh, my wife, by the way, before she was an attorney, was a stockbroker, and she did a lot of cold calling. You know what that is. You call up people cold. You don't know and try to sell them stock. Well, it's kind of like that, being an outlaw biography. You're constantly contacting people who don't know you at all. In fact, Sontag's agent, Andrew Wiley, said, Who are these people? I never heard of Rollison and Paddock. Well, no, you wouldn't have, Wiley, because we're not establishment. We're outlaws. We're not part of your crew your circle, your establishment. Anyway, uh, now we're heading into around 2000. Uh, I I had done a revised biography of uh, Martha Gellhorn after she died. I was working on that, and I read the New York Times, the uh, obituary of Joe Craigie. Uh, Joe Craigie is a name maybe you don't know. Uh, she was married to uh, a famous British politician, Michael Foote, who ran against Margaret Thatcher, who was leader of the Labour Party. Michael's much more than that. He's a literary figure, too, with uh, friends in politics and literature. He's written about Byron, written about Swift. He, he's dead now, but uh, he was very much alive in the year 2000, and his wife had just died. I knew Michael. This is one of the few cases where I wasn't cold calling. I wrote a letter to Michael and I said, I know Jill has just died, but she had a, a wonderful life, married to you, being a documentary filmmaker during World War II, uh, ending her life in her 80s doing a documentary film about Dubrovnik and, and the Yugoslav Wars. And it's probably too early to consider this, but uh, uh, now I had known Jill and Michael because they were both friends of Rebecca West. Uh, and I was writing Michael as a friend as well as a biographer, saying, if you ever do consider a biography of uh, Jill, and I left, I wrote my phone number uh, in the letter, uh, give me a call or write me a letter. He called a couple weeks later, and his first words were, you're the one to do it. He was absolutely elated. Oh, he wanted to have this book done. Come to see him. You could stay with me in my home. Jill's archive is in the house and so on. Well, that's how it worked out. One of the first words he he, um, said to me when I was on his doorstep in March 2000 was, it's your book. He had very strong feelings about biography that, like me, he didn't believe in authorized biography. And he had been sued for libel. Uh, but something he had said as a journalist about a politician. He knew exactly who who I was and what my career was, and, and he had touted my Rebecca West biography. He had written a biography of H.G. Wells and wrote this uh, long footnote about how in order to understand Wells, you have to read my Rebecca West biography and so on. Well, all went well. We were very chummy, and that was the problem, right? It looked from the outside to people, that I was the authorized biographer. I mean, for Christ's sakes, I was living in Michael's home. I was I was in Jill's study. I traveled with him to Dubrovnik, where he and Jill uh, holidayed, and where she knew artists, um, befriended artists. Uh, I went to Plymouth, his, his hometown. Uh, I traveled around England with him. Uh, I was at events in London with him. I went to the Tate Gallery with him. I was seen everywhere with him. And people started to conclude, well, this is a kind of a put-up job. He's the authorized biographer. Even though I would tell them, no, 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 this is an independent work. Well, how can you be independent if you're living with the guy, talking to him every day? Uh, I was there with him at breakfast. I was living in the house. Uh, lunch, dinner, travels, as I say. 
How could this be? But I would say, I said to his family, I said to his friends, I said to anybody we met who asked me about what kind of a book it was, I said, it's an independent, unauthorized biography. Well, uh, certain members of his family, like his nephew Paul Foote, were very suspicious. He asked me what my politics were. I said, liberal Democrat, but I'm not a socialist. And Michael, of course, was a socialist. Um, uh, Paul was essentially a Trotskyist. Um, anyway, I got to know the whole family, interviewed the whole family. Everything was on, was recorded. He had his mind, what I call his minders, uh, a whole uh, cordon sanitaire of women who took care of him after Jill died. They were very suspicious of me, and some of them wouldn't really say very much. Well, all went well until he read the chapter, and I did show him the book before it was published about his marriage. It didn't fit his idealized view of what kind of a husband he was, and he went berserk. He didn't go berserk about the chapter about his affair with another woman. He was almost proud of that. He was upset because I didn't view the marriage exactly the way he viewed the marriage. We had a long correspondence, a tussle back and forth. I made a few minor modifications in language, but essentially stuck by my guns. He didn't try to suppress the book, but what was going to be a big campaign of him touting the biography of Joe Craigie didn't happen. And the book, to be honest, didn't sell very well. But I'm proud of it because I didn't back down. I had amassed over 100 hours of recordings with him, and I was already thinking I would do a biography of him, which the publisher of my Craigie book was not keen on because there had already been a biography, and uh, he knew Michael was not going to cooperate. That is, the publisher knew Michael was not going to cooperate. But I let that rest for a while. And after um, the Craigie publication of uh, Joe Craigie's biography in 2005. I had actually finished it in 2003, but for various reasons it wasn't published till 2005. Beginning in 2003, I started writing a weekly, weekly column uh, for the New York Sun. And it's during that period, between 2003 and 2012, that I did not publish a biography. Instead, what I did was pontificate, as I'm doing now, about biography publishing several books, A Higher Form of Cannibalism, The Adventures in the Art and Politics of, of Biography, uh, Reading Biography, a collection of my reviews in the New York Sun, Essays in Biography from various uh, publications, um, Lives of the Novelists, basically my, my reviews in the New York Sun, Female Icons from Marilyn Monroe to Susan Sontag, which was not some book reviews, but talks that I'd given around the country about biography. Um, then I thought, I'll do a biography of Amy Lowell. And I'll do a biography of Amy Lowell because she's been dead since 1925. Um, most uh, stuff is going to be in the public domain. Uh, so I started writing, uh, researching and writing that biography of Amy Lowell. Several feminist scholars have said, we really need a new biography of Amy Lowell. Uh, and uh, I was keen on that. Uh, it was a huge archive at Harvard that was open and had been open for years. Uh, and a biography hadn't been done in 40 years, so it was time to do a new one. But in the middle of that, uh, I had become editor of the Hollywood Legends series at the University Press of Mississippi, and the uh, publisher, who was then uh, Layla Salisbury, called me up and she said, I got a call from the daughter of this old movie star, Dana Andrews, uh, who is looking for a biographer, and he could be part of the Hollywood Legends series. He's a big, big star in the 1940s. And she said, do you know of anybody? And I said, well, yes, I do. And she said, who? I said, me. Uh, it was just a, a stroke of luck. Uh, Dana Andrews was a favorite of mine, particularly his film Laura, which I watched practically every year. Well, 
she gave me uh, Susan Andrews's phone number. That's one of Dana's daughters. Uh, we had a long conversation. She, as in the Joe Craigie case, had a huge treasure trove of material. And um, I said to Susan, I said, now, one thing you have to be clear about is it's my book. I'm going to show it to you. And I will correct any mistakes and I'll think about interpretations that you question, so on, but it's my book. Susan said, okay. And that's how it turned out. I won't spend a lot of time on this, except I think it's it's one of my best-selling biographies. It's done better than almost anything because he has just a huge devoted following. It was a matter of following, of finding a niche audience. Actually, at the time, I didn't know it. It was a labor of love. He was a wonderful letter writer. He kept a journal. He was a biographer's dream. And he was also very open about his drinking, you know, about his faults as a human being. And his family loved him. They absolutely loved him, but they knew he had his faults, he committed his sins, and so on. So it was just, ah, it was just a romance, really, to write the book and to be able even, you know, to, to if you want to call it the negative things, uh, the sides of him which weren't flattering. Uh, no one was concerned about showing that because th- they knew the man had overcome this. He overcame his drinking. He overcame his faults. And he had a wonderful marriage, as uh, Norman Lloyd said. And he was speaking about the actor and Dana's act, behavior in movie sets. He was a prince among men. He was one of nature's noblemen, uh, Lloyd said, one of his fellow actors who's still alive today, over 100 years old. Well, uh so I interrupted Amy Lowell to do Dana Andrews, and then I interrupted Dana Andrews to do Sylvia Plath, American Isis, The Life and Art of Sylvia Plath in 2013. Uh, why did I do that? Because we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of her death. I had written a long piece in the New York Sun about other Plath biographies and saw a new way to do this, to see her as, in a sense, a mythological figure, in a way, creating another legend of herself. Janet Malcolm would have you believe the legend was created after her death. The point of my book was, no, no, she wanted to be known. She wanted to be known as a legend, as a myth, before she died. That's really the point of my biography that most reviewers... Uh, even to this day, don't understand what's unusual. And again, I think it's because I was an outlaw. I was outside, never contacted the estate, Uh, had a very canny lawyer at St. Martin's Press who was a poet himself who showed me how I would be able to quote enough and get away with it uh, under fair use. Get away with it sounds like I'm an outlaw, doesn't it? So I did the Plath, I finished the Andrews, I did the Plath, 2012, 20, uh, 2012 Andrews, 2013 Plath. Uh, I was already, uh, because I had interrupted Lowell, came out with Lowell in 2013, later that year. And so people thought, what's wrong with this person? He publishes two biographies in one year. Well, I had been working in Lowell for over six years and thinking about her since the year 2000 when... Uh, encyclopedias were saying we need a new biography, literary encyclopedias, a new biography of Amy Lowell. So publication dates can be quite misleading. Quick uh, point about my, uh, after uh, Dana Andrews in my Hollywood Legends series is my biography of Walter Brennan. Again, I began as an outlaw. I knew no one in the Brennan family. He had lots of uh, he had children and grandchildren and great now great grandchildren. Uh, a community in Joseph, Oregon, who knew him as a rancher as well as a movie star, um, character actor, really television star, real McCoys. Uh, I wrote to the family, never got an answer. Um, interviewed other people who knew Walter Brennan. Uh, picked up various things about Walter Brennan archives, and then I got a break. And again, a stroke of luck, speaking at the Philadelphia Athenaeum, making a joke which you only get if you know who um, Walter Brennan is. He was born in New England, not really far from Sylvia Plath, as a matter of fact. So I had done Amy Lowell, I had done Sylvia Plath, and I was starting work on Walter Brennan. And I was speaking at the Philadelphia Athenaeum about Amy Lowell. And I made this joke that my biographies of Amy Lowell Sylvia Plath and Walter Brennan were my New England triptych. 
Most people don't laugh when I say that because they don't know who Walter Brennan is, that he was a New Englander, even though people think because he was in so many Westerns that he must have come somewhere out West. Long story short, I'm giving this talk at the Athenaeum, and what happens? Someone in the audience from out West is thinking of doing a kind of, building a kind of institution like the Philadelphia Athenaeum in, I think it was Seattle. But he knew people in Joseph, Oregon. And he knew the um, uh, director of the Josephi Center, Rich Juan Schneider, who's still the director of the center and who is a friend of mine now. And after my talk uh, on Amy Lowell, this fellow came up to me and he said, you know, I, ha I know someone who's really close friends with the uh, Brennan family uh, in Joseph, Oregon. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, well, I'd love to, you know, get in touch with him. So I did. And uh, I wrote to Rich uh, and I said, you know, I'm doing this biography of Brennan. And uh, I know that Joseph, Oregon's important. He had a Brennan had his own movie theater there, for one thing, as well as a 10,000-acre cattle ranch. And a couple of weeks later, Rich writes back to me. He said, I ran into Tammy. Uh, Tammy is one of Walter Brennan's uh, uh, grandchildren. And uh, she was named after the character in Tammy and the Bachelor, played by Debbie Reynolds. Anyway... Tammy, he starts talking to Tammy about me, and at this point he knows what my credentials are and the work I've done and so on. And Tammy says sort of vaguely, oh, yeah, I think we got a letter from somebody named Rollison wanting to do a biography of my grandfather. We, we just ignore those letters. And Rich said, you really shouldn't. This, this guy is on, on the level. He's legit, which is pretty funny, you know, in a sense, for an outlaw biographer. Uh, uh, well... One of the things I was worried about with the Walter Brennan biography, again, to make a long, long story short, I got to know the family. I went out to Joseph twice, interviewed everybody in the family, people he worked with, people in the community, uh, and so on. Uh, what I was worried about was Brennan's politics, not not for my own sake. He was a what we would call today a reactionary, not even a right-winger. Uh, that didn't bother me because... What I look at is subjects. I don't write biographies because I approve of my subjects or they're like me or I like them or any any stuff like that. It's, are they a fascinating subject and do they speak to something in my own experience? And with my biographies of actors, it's because I was trained as an actor and uh, uh, and quit before who knows how far I could have gone in my acting career. But uh, these are people who stuck with it. Uh, both Dane Andrews and, and Walter Brennan were, you know, uh, living essentially at the poverty level for many, many years before they they uh, they became successful. And frankly, I'm too middle class to have attempted something like that. So I admire these people tremendously. Um, but, you know, uh, as an outlaw, I'm going to I'm going to deal with all facets of them. So I got to know the family really well. But uh, what I was worried about is that when when the family looked at it, and again, I wasn't worried. I, uh, in the sense of letting them look at it before the book came out, I'd rather know what's going to happen to me. Uh, and it wasn't a matter of requesting per permission for writings or things like that, though Brennan did write some letters. So what I did was, um, I, 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 you know, I talked to the family, talked to them about politics. I didn't never express my political views, which was certainly weren't Walter Brennan's. But what I quickly found out is virtually everyone in the family were as reactionary as Brennan was. And when I wrote about his politics in my biography, that, did, that didn't phase them at all uh, because uh, they didn't see anything wrong with them. Uh, they weren't embarrassed by them. They weren't defensive. Uh, it just wasn't an issue. Okay, very quickly... Um, uh, my last two books, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath and My Life of William Faulkner. Again, with The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, the only issue was, did I have something to say? And what I had to say was, you really need to look at the circumstances of her last seven months, what I call the last days. Uh, that is, you know, the totality of the conditions. There are a lot of people who say things like, well, she was suicidal, as if that's some kind of characteristic in her personality. There were moments in her life, uh, in many lives, when people are suicidal, but she wasn't a suicidal personality. Uh, 
and I tried to explain that in the last days of Sylvia Plath, what it was about exactly where she was in England in 1963. I had been in England in 1963. I knew what England was like in 1963. I knew what it was like for an American to be in England in 1963. Those are the kinds of things I wanted to convey. New archives had opened up. I've talked about this in other podcasts. You know, I had lots of new information. So there were all kinds of reasons. And of course, again, as with American ISIS, uh, I didn't even make an effort to contact the Plath or the Hughes estates because I wanted to be completely independent. I didn't want to, I had seen the correspondence. I had written about this, what the Plath estate was like in the last chapter of American ISIS that came out in 2013. Uh, so I knew I knew that was I just went ahead and did it. Now with Faulkner, Faulkner died in 1962. His wife died in the mid 70s. Uh, there were grandchildren, but at most one of them might have a vague memory of Faulkner. What I knew about the Faulkner estate was that it charged scholars a lot of money to quote. Uh, at this point, the law has changed a lot with biography. It is much easier to quote without getting permission. S- especially scholars don't seem to know this. They think they're being good citizens by applying for permission to quote. I Over and over again, I've seen this with biographies of Faulkner written by scholars getting permission. And I look at their book and I look at what they quote uh, and I realize they didn't need to apply for permission at all. So when I was giving a talk about my Faulkner biography before it was published, a very um, well-known and respected Faulkner scholar said, what are you going to do about the Faulkner estate? Um, And, you know, he recounted some stories of of scholars for, you know, academic publications being charged a lot of money for quoting from Faulkner. I said, what am I going to do? I'm going to ignore them. I'm not going to have any contact with them at all. You know, the the, uh, estate had sued Woody Allen, uh, for uh, quoting from Requiem for not one sentence, one line, which was ridiculous, of course. The case was thrown out in court. But somebody else might say, oh, you know, I've got, I've got to get permission. No, that's not how I felt. I felt I could do it all under fair use. And if you look at my two-volume Faulkner biography, you see I quote a lot. I quote a lot. And I think it's justifiable. That's a whole other issue, fair use, which I've I discuss, for instance, Confessions of a Serial Biographer. I explain how I use fair use. Um, I didn't need to get to to the uh, estate. Uh, Long story short, both volumes have been published. No one has sued me. In fact, I just did an event at a winery in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, Who owns the uh, winery? One of William Faulkner's grandchildren. Thanks for listening.